Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. We're in our Advent series. It's uh, Advent and Four Acts, and you've got a card there that, that shows what the Four Acts of Advent are. And uh, the first week we did uh, Son of Eve, and so we saw that Jesus Christ is the promised seed of the woman, promised in Genesis 3.15, that will crush the snake's head, crush the serpent's head, defeat Satan and evil and death. And so, you know, not many Christmas cards have that, but next year, guys, that's your thing. Uh, you can put on your Christmas card. And then last week we looked at how Jesus is the, the son of Abraham, who, uh, who will bless all nations. Um, he will come and he will arra- uh, redeem a people from every tribe and nation and people and language and secure an eternal land. And so, and then this week we're going to do this one right here, the son of David, that Jesus is the promised son of David who will reign on earth forever and make all things right. And so that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, let me pray again and we'll get started. Father, we come before you as we open your word and we open it with anticipation, Lord. We know that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and discerns between thoughts and intentions, Lord. And so as we open it, we, we open it expectantly. We pray, Lord, that you give us hearts that are ready to listen to you. We're, Lord, we pray that you would somehow put us face to face with yourself so that all the distractions melt away and we're hearing your word from you. Lord, we are your kids. We desire to hear from you. We desire to be taught by you. We desire to be rebuked and instructed and encouraged by you. And we pray that you do all that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. And so um, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 7, um, and if you turn to 2 Samuel 7, this, this takes us about 1,000 B.C., so it's about 1,000 B.C. when David lived, and David had captured Jerusalem. He had built this really nice palace. It says it was of cedar. It was probably beautiful. probably smelled nice, yeah? And uh, he built this palace in Jerusalem. He uh, brings up the, uh, the ark and the tabernacle, and the tabernacle, remember, was like a, uh, it was a portable temple, so it was a tent, and he brings it up. And he's comfortable in his place, and then he has this really nice idea. So 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, it says, When the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do uh, that is which is in your heart, the Lord is with you. And so David looks out over the balcony of this beautiful you know, palace that he has for himself, smells really nice, looks out, and he sees this tent with, with the ark in it. And he thinks to himself, I should make God a nice house too, right? I got this nice house, he should have a nice house. And Nathan says to him, awesome, do what you want to do, that sounds great. But the Lord says, not so fast. Look at verse 4. It says, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? God then rebukes him and he says um, in verse six, he says, you know, I never needed a house before. He says in verse six, he says, I've lived in, in a, I've not lived in a house since the day that you brought the people out of Israel from Egypt to this day but I have been moving about in this tent dwelling. He's like, I never needed one before. And then he says, I never asked for one. Look at verse 7. In all the places where we moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house? I didn't ask for it. I don't need it. And then he also here, he wants to correct a, a, a wrong thinking in David's heart. Because we hear it and we think, oh, this sounds really nice. But God's detecting something in David's heart. You see, David wants to do God a favor. Okay? David wants to do God a favor, which sounds nice, but is impossible. 
because God has no needs. Yeah, we don't do God favors. That's what he's starting to think, right? God has no needs. We can easily slip into a mindset that somehow God needs us for something. He needs us for his mission. He needs us to do ministry. He needs us to do things. God has no needs outside of himself. Um, That's called his independence, or the theological word is aseity. And it means that God does not need anything outside of himself. God doesn't need our service God doesn't need uh, a place to be. He doesn't need space. He doesn't need time. He doesn't need matter. He existed eternally without anything else except himself. He doesn't even need us for companionship. We might think, oh, poor God, you know, before he created, so bored, so lonely. No, he's triune. He's three persons in one. He's a community of beings. He's never needed anything, including our companionship. God has no needs. And yet, God does enjoy his people. He has set his affection on his people, but he doesn't need them. Um, Psalm 50 verse 10 says this, the Lord says, for every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. I really love that. And all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you for the world and the fullness of it is mine. I love that. Like if I was hungry, I wouldn't even mention it to you. I don't need you. Isn't that amazing? Um, this is very freeing actually to realize. Acts 17, 24, Paul says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's not served as though he needs anything. He's the one who gives. God is the, always the giver, we're the receiver. It's never the other way around. And so he sets David straight in verse 8 here. He says, now therefore... Thus say to my servant David, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you out of the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over the house of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make your name great, like the name of the great ones of the earth. He's like, "Um, you're a shepherd boy, just so you remember that. (laughs) You were watching sheep and I made you king. You all the reason all your enemies have, have fallen before you is because I gave you that. He's saying, uh, you're the one that needs me. God, guys, has favor on us. We never have favor on him nor give him favors. David um, needs the Lord, not the other way around. And it's really cool what the Lord does here. He goes, he does in this passage, he goes, oh, you want to build me a house? You know what? I'm going to build you a house. You know, he flips it on him. Uh, you'll see that in uh, verse 11. And and have you ever known people like that where you you try and give them a gift, you give them a generous gift, and then they turn around and they like give you a gift that's twice as valuable? And then you're like, okay, now what do I do? You know, it's like a gift arms race. It's that way with the Lord here. It's like, he goes, he's like, hey, I'd really like to build you a temple. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to build you a house. And he's like, I already have a house. Well, what's going on here? We'll see. This is uh, David's, God's gift to David. Look at verse 11. He says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision Nathan spoke to David. It's really great. So the Lord's saying here, he's saying, you know what, um, the temple thing, don't worry about that. Your son's going to build that. But let me talk to you about the house I'm going to build for you. 
You know, Solomon's going to build me a house, but let me tell you about the house I'm going to build for you. And there's a play on words here. David wants to build God a house as in a physical temple. And then God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to build you a house, but he means a household or a dynasty. He's instead, he is, you want to build me a temple? I'm going to build you a house, a lineage of kings that will go on forever from you. Isn't that amazing? This promise is called the Davidic covenant was that God would ensure that the throne of Israel never departed from David's family. And even if David's heirs would sin in significant ways as king, he was going to always have the throne uh, uh, in the hands of somebody in David's family. And this would have been a concern to David, because you remember Saul, the first king, the one right before him, he sins, and Jonathan, his son, never gets to reign, right? The, the, the throne was taken away from his family. But uh, God's promising here that the throne will never be taken away from David's family. He'll discipline those kings, he'll remove a king here or there, but he's always going to have the throne be in the hands of David's family. The, the nation will be punished at times for their, for, their, for their sin, but God will remain faithful. There will always be a king from David's line uh, reigning. And guys, there's really only two ways this can happen. One is, is that God will supply a continuous line of people from David's line, and they will always reign on the throne forever. There will be, always be a son of David over and over again. That's one way to fulfill this. The other way is that it'll go on for a while, and then there'll be one son that lives forever and reigns forever. That's the other way to fulfill this. I wonder which one it's going to be. We don't know here, okay? We don't know yet. We know hundreds of years later we get more insight, though. Take a look at Isaiah 9. Because if we fast forward, so that was 1,000 B.C. Now we're like early 700s B.C. We're a little 300 years closer. And a lot of kings have reigned, a lot of sons of David, most of them hideous, awful people. And God's kept his promise, though. He's kept the throne in, in David's family, just as he promised David. Um, bad kings arise, and when bad kings arise, God's people suffer for it because the nation goes into idolatry and they're, they're suffering. And when we get to Isaiah 9 here, we see lots of these judgments coming to roost on Israel. We see in the northern kingdom, uh, the top part of Israel is, gone, is going away into slavery by Assyria, and the people are being sent off. And then the southern kingdom is next. They, King Ahaz knows we're next, we're going to get conquered and everything. So it's a very dark time in Israel. If you look at the very end of Isaiah 8, it says this, They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against the king and their God, and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. A very dark time in Israel. There's lots of dark times in Israel, but this is a very dark time in Israel. There's distress, there's emptiness, they're enraged. It says they speak contemptuously against their king. They speak contemptuously against their God. I mean, it sounds similar to today in a lot of ways. You know, there's a sense of fear and dread. You know, we have fears of war. We have fears of terrorism. We have, you know, polarized politics with people speaking contemptuously against leaders. And then we have people blaming God if there is one. You know, you love that part, right? It's like, you know, if God exists, he's got a lot to answer for. They're speaking contemptuously against him. And in that dark context, God gives more details about this promised son of David. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 9. This is so good. It says, but there will be no anguish for her. Um, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought contempt on the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness have had light shine upon them. You have multiplied the nation and have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as the joy with harvest. 
as they are glad when they divide the spoils. And so God's going to bring light into darkness and, and joy into gloom. And this joy is a multifaceted joy. He says it's the kind of joy that you get at harvest, and this is the kind of joy you get when you're dividing the spoils. And so now, probably not many of you are farmers, but farming is stressful, especially during those times. You know, there's always worry, you know, too much rain, not enough rain, you know, a wind, a locust, whatever. And so when harvest comes and you get everything in the barn and it's all secure, you can relax and you can rejoice and there would be feasting and excitement. Another time of joy would be, you know, at victory, victory in battle and they're dividing the spoils and war is over. What he's describing here, guys, is joy in every part of life. A deep, multifaceted joy that he's going to bring into a place of darkness. A place of darkness like our world. He's going to bring this unbelievable joy. Well, how is he going to do it? He's going to do it with three things, and they all start with four. Take a look at your passage there. Do you see the fours? So verse four starts with four. Verse five starts with the word four. And verse six. Those are the three things he's going to do. First one is he's going to free the enslaved. Look at verse four. He says, For the yoke of the burden and the staff of the shoulder... And the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. This yoke here, this isn't like yolk from an egg, right? This is a heavy wooden beam you would put over animals, over beasts of burden. So oxen would wear this yoke or some sort of animal that's pulling a load. And what it's a description of is it's a description of enslavement. These God's people are enslaved like beasts. They're enslaved like animals. They're being enslaved by foreign nations, invading them, and literally enslaving them in this case and beating them down with the rod of oppression. This is all a consequence of their sin. As a consequence of their sin, they're being enslaved and oppressed. You know, guys, that sin always enslaves. Sin always enslaves. Sin always promises some sort of freedom and joy and always enslaves. We see this most clearly with addiction, right? With addiction, it's something that supplies, you know, you think some joy, some freedom, some happiness, you know, some rush of life, and then what happens? Slowly but surely, you stop using it and it starts using you. That's the way all sin works, though, guys. It enslaves, but God will bring freedom from sin's oppression. So that's the first one. Second one, second four is in verse five. God will bring joy by bringing a permanent peace. Check this out. It says, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle turmoil and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is such a cool image. This is the image of they've, they've been through a war. They've won the war. They're sitting around the campfire. They're burning their boots and they're bloody clothes. Isn't that awesome? They're just, they got these boots that are all bloody from war, and the clothes that are all bloody from war, and they're just tossing them in the fire to burn them. They don't want to be reminded of it, and they don't need that stuff anymore. And that's what they do with the combustibles, but if you look at Isaiah 2.4, this is what they do with the stuff they can't burn, with the metals. It says that when Christ comes back, he shall judge between the nations, and shall decide dispute among the peoples. And it says they will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not rise up against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Can you imagine ever having that kind of confidence that there would never be a war again? That you go like, hey, let's get rid of all this military gear. We're not going to need this. Let's take all these bombs and take them apart. Let's take these jets apart. Let's, let's bang them into some, like, farming equipment. You know, we don't need this anymore. Let's get rid of the military. We'll never need it again. Can you imagine having that kind of confidence? That's what's going to happen when this king comes is he's going to make us so confident that there'll be a permanent peace that we won't need those things. How is he going to do this? He's going to do it through the third four. Take a look at it, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is a really strange answer, okay? Like, what's the solution, guys, for warfare, terrorism, disease, pain, strife, evil, suffering, and death? And the answer is, God goes, so I got this baby, 
You know, and you're thinking like, okay, this is an odd solution, you know. But that's what Christmas is about, guys. The Christmas is about that there's a baby that's born that's going to save the world. That's what Christmas is about. And you can imagine his birth announcement, right? Jesus of Nazareth, 6 pounds, 12 ounces, 19 inches long. He will save the world. Like, that's the birth announcement. And you think, like, in our area, like, parents have pretty high expectations for their kids, put a lot of pressure on them. That's a pretty high-pressure birth announcement, right? He will save the world. He will end wars. He will bring permanent peace. So who is this baby? Well, we know he's a king, and we know that from verse 6. It says that the government will be upon his shoulders. The whole government, like all of the government, will be upon his shoulders. This is a real king. This is the kind with absolute rule, absolute sovereignty, absolute control. This is the promised son of David who will rule as king forever. So now we know how that Davidic covenant is going to be um, fulfilled. It's going to be through a particular king that has sovereignty and lives forever. Now, I know as Americans, like, we're not into kings, right? Like, we made that clear, right? When we became a country, we said, we don't do kings, you know? And we said, we're done with this. We, we, don't, we don't have anybody reign over us like that. And so we develop a system of government with a whole bunch of people that just fight all the time. And so no one can take ultimate control. It's pretty beautiful. And the crazy thing, too, is England, that still has a king or a queen, is decorative, right? She's decorative. And when there's a king again, he'll be decorative, right? They reign, but they don't rule. So even they have decided they don't want one either. They're like, hey, good job. We'll keep the king, but we won't let him do anything, okay? But guys, this negative view of kings, we have this negative view because we believe, and it's right belief in general, is that absolute power should not be in the hands of any particular person, right? We should not have a king that has absolute power unless it's this king, this king, this absolutely powerful king, is really, really good news. And I want to show you what that king's like in this passage. Verse 6 says, his name shall be called. And he's got a few titles here. Now, these are not things he would literally be called. These are things that describe him. Okay, so what's this king like that has absolute power? First, it says he's a wonderful counselor. This is so cool. That word wonder is a word that's always reserved for things that only God can do. Think New Testament signs and wonders. That's the kind of wonder it is. He's, he's a wonderful counselor in that he can do things that only God can do. And we see that in the Gospels, right? Jesus comes and he does things like uh, feeding uh, the 5,000, healing people, freeing people from demonic oppression, having people that like sat on mats for over 40 years be able to get up and walk. Um, he raised the dead. He turns water into wine. I mean, he does wonders. He does things that no one else can do. And you guys realize that these are all foretastes of his kingdom. You say, when this king comes down and he reigns on earth, what will it be like? And those miracles are all foretastes of that. They're all little appetizers of what the kingdom's like. Because people sometimes will think, well, you know, miracles, miracles are things that when, you know, the laws of nature are broken, or, or miracles are, you know, the way things uh, aren't normally and shouldn't be, you know? This is the way things should be. Miracles are exceptions. Guys, the way it is now is the way it shouldn't be. The miracles are what it's going to be and should be and will be. They're foretastes of the kingdom of God. So he's a wonderful counselor. Counselor points to his wisdom, right? Have you ever heard Jesus teach? Have you ever just read his teaching? He's a wonderful counselor. His wisdom is unbelievable. I mean, his teaching, John Gerstner, I love this quote. He says, no one has yet discovered the word Jesus ought to have said, right? Like, you don't just go, well, you know what he ought to have said. No, he always has the best lines. He always says the best things. He always knows exactly what to say. He always has the most penetrating but gentle things to say. He knows when to rebuke people. He knows when to be gentle with them. He's amazing. He's a wonderful counselor. He's exactly what you want in a king, right? One of the big problems with kings is they're so often foolish. He's a wonderful counselor. He's also, verse 6, mighty God. 
So this king is God himself. This baby, this son of David, is God in the flesh. Very God of very God. Truly human, truly God at the same time. It says he's a mighty God. This word's really cool. This word mighty, it, it, the Greek word is, uh, the, sorry, the Hebrew word is gibber, which means hero. So what it really means is God our hero, our hero God, our heroic God. Isn't that awesome? Guys, only in Jesus Christ do you have a God that's heroic. You think of the other gods of other religions, they're not heroes. They've risked nothing. They've suffered nothing if they exist, and they don't. So you think of like uh, the God Allah. This is not a hero. This is somebody sitting on his throne and raining down his judgments, but he's never done anything. He's never faced danger with courage like Jesus. He's never accepted suffering and death to rescue the world. Only in Jesus do we have a God who is truly heroic. In Jesus, we have God himself dropping behind enemy lines on a rescue mission that he knows will cost him his life. And how does he drop behind enemy lines? As a baby. I mean, it's one thing to come unarmed. It's another thing to come as a baby. You know, he came as a baby. He, this is dangerous. He is our heroic God. He is our hero God. Guys, Jesus Christ was born to be king. He was descended from the right line. He was descended from the line of David the king. He was born in the right place, in the place that was prophesied, the city of David, Bethlehem. He was received as king by the Magi. He was confessed as king by Peter. Do you remember when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said this. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That word, the Christ, is his kingly title. I think a lot of times we think that Christ is Jesus' last name. You know, like, hey, Mr. Christ. No, Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. Um, Christ is a messianic term. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. It was a very loaded term in that time. This, the, the Christ was a figure that they were waiting for to free them from oppression. They, they were oppressed by the Romans at that time. It was a boiling point. It was about to explode. And everybody's looking for a Messiah, a Christ to come, the promised son of David. And there were a lot of them. There were a lot of people that said they were the Christ. They were the Messiah. They're the anointed one that's going to come, the king that would come and, and push off the Romans. And Jesus proved himself, guys, to be the Christ. We see that through his teachings. We see that through his miracles. Peter had been led along to finally realize through the character of Jesus and his teaching and his miracles that he was the Christ. He is the king. What's really cool when you look through the New Testament, they're constantly trying to prove to each other that he's the Christ. That's the good news, that he's the king. I love the line in Tolkien in uh, Return of the King where it says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. And so you see as Jesus is going through and he's healing all around him and bringing kingdom blessings, people are like, this is the Christ. This is the king that would come. Um, he entered Jerusalem as a king. Remember that? Palm Sunday, he comes down. He's on a donkey, just as prophesied in Zechariah. They know exactly what he's doing. They're throwing palm branches down. They're like, Hosanna, save us. And they're worshiping him as the king who has come. You remember he was tried as a king? You see, um, the high priest tells him, he goes, just tell us. Are you the Christ? Are you the king? He says, I am the king. He answers an affirmative. That's, he's all, that's all we need to hear. You know? And then they sent him to Pilate. And Pilate was like, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, he answers in the affirmative again. Remember, he was mocked as a king. They put him in a purple robe, and they put a crown of thorns on his head and a scepter, and they bowed down, and they beat him, and, and, and they, they mocked him as a king. Remember, he died as a king. I mean, how amazing is the sovereignty of God that he dies on a cross with something that says king of the Jews on top? It was just amazing, right? He, he died with a label that he was king. Why did he die? Why would the king come to die? The king came to die, guys, because we do not deserve to be a part of his kingdom. 
We've all rebelled against the king. We've all rebelled against this good king and his good kingdom. Sin, guys, you realize, is a declaration of war. Every time we sin, it's a declaration of war against the only king that matters. It's treason against the king. And when he brings in his kingdom, we would deserve, apart from Christ, to be banished. Many will be. You will be if you're not in Christ. You'll be banished from his kingdom. And yet, look what the king does. The king does something no kings do. On the cross, King Jesus paid your treason so that you could be welcomed into the kingdom. He was banished outside of Jerusalem, outside the walls. He was banished outside his kingdom to welcome you into his kingdom. And then he was raised, right? He was raised to prove he was the Christ. I mean, if you wouldn't believe it by his, his teaching and his character and his miracles, you have to believe it by the resurrection. And that's what the good news was. They went around telling people that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that he was the Christ. And then what happened? He's around 40 days, right? And then what does he do? He ascends his king. He ascends his king. He goes and he's ascended on the throne in heaven and he reigns there. He reigns right now on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And guys, this fulfills the promise to David, right? David was promised that there would be a child from his line would reign eternally forever. And it's not a stream of kings because guess what? Israel doesn't have any Davidic kings now. Okay, this is the only way this was fulfilled. Jesus is now reigning. A real human being with David's real DNA. Like if you were to swab the inside of his cheek and send it to one of those things, you know, and you had some of David's DNA, it would match. Okay, it would be, we would know that it's from his line. He is from the line of David, seated on the throne in heaven. God keeps his promises. He's kept the Davidic covenant. And that's his kingdom, what we call inaugurated. So he had his inauguration at the ascension. He is reigning now. But then there's something coming, which is the consummation. When he reigns here on earth and we see him and he sets all things right. And so right now he's ruling in his inaugurated kingdom from heaven. He's ruling his church. He's expanding his kingdom into enemy territory right now. And then one day he's going to return. We see in Revelation he returns with what written on him? King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes here and he makes all things right. He judges and sets the world right. That's his consummated kingdom. Guys, this is God our hero. This is Jesus, the son of David, come to reign as king. What else is he like? Look at verse 6. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. And so from some of you guys, you're like, uh-oh, what's this? right? How can he be called the Father? This isn't a confusion of the Trinity, because the Father is a distinct person from the Son, one God, three persons, right? Um, this isn't saying that Jesus somehow is the Father. This is, this is talking about his fatherly care for his people. Kings can reign in different ways. King Jesus reigns in a fatherly way towards his people, he, and it speaks to his protection and provision of us. He's an everlasting Father in that he protects him and provides for us in a way that never ends. Isn't that awesome? That's the way to rule. You look at the Old Testament, you look through some of those kings, a lot of them did not treat their subjects fatherly, right? Jesus is a different kind of king. And then he's what else? Verse 6, prince of peace. You guys remember the context of this is Israel's being invaded and there's war close to home. Real peace would have been very, very good news, but very hard to believe, right? I was listening to a podcast a while back and uh, the subject was, like, will wars ever end? And they had asked people in the 80s, do you think wars will ever end? And a third of people said, no, wars will never end. A third of people in the 80s. Now, if you ask people, will wars ever end? Nine out of 10 say no, okay? We've gotten a lot more pessimistic, right? Guys, nine out of 10 people are wrong. Wars will cease. And the other one out of 10 are right for the wrong reason, okay? <laughs> right? It will be when Jesus comes and wars will cease on this earth in a world made new. 
all wars will cease when the Prince of Peace reigns. And this word peace is such an awesome word. It's the word shalom, which doesn't just mean absence of war and strife. It means deep well-being and wholeness and prosperity and human flourishing. Um, Isaiah actually described this in Isaiah 65. He said this, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And then listen to this. No more shall there be heard in it the sound of weeping or crying or distress. Dropping down a little, it says, they shall build houses. Listen to this. Do you think of heaven this way? Do you think of like, not heaven now, but heaven when, when heaven comes down and the earth is made new, our final state. Do you think of it like this? Listen to this. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For the days of my people will be as the days of a tree. And my chosen ones shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or, vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. And then this is so cool. He says, before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. And the lion uh, shall eat straw like the ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Guys, we're going to live forever in a redeemed, made new world in redeemed, made new bodies. And I know I bring that up a lot. I bring it up a lot because most people don't get it. We have this very watered-down view of heaven that somehow it's a never-ending immaterial existence, you know, where we don't really do anything. It's, it's something, it's a world made new with Christ reigning as King, His very presence seen and felt and known. That's the picture. If you look at Revelation 21 and 22, you see the same thing. Guys, when we pray, Your kingdom come, the Lord's Prayer, that prayer will be answered, and it will be answered when the king returns. Look at Isaiah 9-7. This is so cool. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That's good increased government right there. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and behold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. And then how do we know this is going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isn't that awesome? How do we live, though, in the in-between? So Jesus' reign has been inaugurated. He has he come. He's lived a perfect life. He's died. He's raised. He's ascended. He's reigning. He's inaugurated. But we have not yet experienced the consummation of the kingdom, right? We don't see him here. We still see injustice. We still have things we have to deal with. The original readers of Isaiah 9 still had to deal with a foreign invasion. They had this great promise, but they're still dealing with an invading foreigner. We, guys, have to deal with the effects of the fall still in our bodies, a lot of us have uh, bodies, physical, mental. We deal with things in our bodies that are not right, that are broken, that are hard to carry around. You know, Paul says, like, in these tents we groan. And whether that's things of your mind or things of your body, it's hard. We deal with broken relationships. I mean, you guys have holiday parties to go to. We deal with broken relationships still. I mean, there's still hardship there. We deal with difficulty in our work and our world. How do we live in the time in between? I want to give you three things real quick. How do we live between his inaugurated kingdom and his consummated kingdom? First one is hope in the king. Look at verse 6. It says here that Jesus is a son given. Isn't that cool? Jesus is a gift. Jesus has been given to you as a gift. A gift to take away your sin. A gift to free you from sin. The slavery to sin. Uh, a gift to give you the world to come. And the, the call of Christmas is to hope in this gift. 
hope in him, guys. And I know hope is a very misused word in our culture. You guys, maybe you have a holiday party and you ask your friend, hey, are you going to come? What do they say? I hope so. What does that mean? They're not coming. You can scratch them off your list. Okay, so hope means the opposite thing in our culture that biblical hope means, okay? Hope in the scriptures is a sure thing, okay? Um, And notice, guys, that in Isaiah 9, it's in past tense. Really weird. I don't know if you noticed that. It's in past tense. Why is is so much of it in past tense? It's in past tense because what happened with the prophet is when he was thinking, when God was revealing these things to him, it was as if he was transported forward to the future, seeing it all already accomplished. Is that's what hope is. It's to see what God has promised to do in the future and see it as for sure, as absolutely going to happen. Um, a kingdom that is definite. We look forward to all these things as if they're for sure done. Isn't that awesome? N.T. Wright said that hope is imagining God's future into the present. Isn't that cool? Imagining God's future into the present. That's what hope is. You guys remember the old guy, Simeon? So old Simeon, not major character, but... Uh, when they brought baby Jesus to the temple and they're going to dedicate him, there was this like super old guy. And this super old guy, it said, had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. So he'd been like pouring over Isaiah 9 and other passages. And he's just like, man, I am just hoping that in my lifetime I'll see this. And then it says the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's Christ. So here he is waiting in the temple. I guess he's figuring, well, if he's going to be born, he's got to come through here, right? So he's waiting there in that place, and he sees Jesus, and somehow God reveals to him, like, this is the one. You remember him holding him? This, you know, creaky old man holding this baby, and they're probably, like, holding underneath so he doesn't drop him or something. He's holding him up, and he's saying, he's saying, like, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Isn't that awesome? He sees this baby and he knows this is a solution to all his problems and he could just die now. Isn't that awesome? We could just die now too. If we see that our solution is all wrapped up in Christ, we can die in peace. Guys, Christmas is about taking hold of the baby by faith as a solution to all of our problems, our slavery, our sin, and our eternal satisfaction. Third, or second, live in the kingdom. I want to talk about that a little bit. So first, uh, hope in the king and then live in the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of God, guys, is a term that a lot of people don't know what it is, but the kingdom of God is God's reign. So anywhere you feel and experience and it's discernible that God's reigning, that is an experience of his kingdom. And that's what discipleship's about. Discipleship is about learning to live in J- Jesus' kingdom, his kingdom that's coming. It's by the power of the Spirit. And so as we learn to live by the power of the Spirit, Christ the King breaks the yoke in our lives and frees us, and we live in the kingdom. And I've told you guys this before, but anywhere that a believer is living under the king, living in the kingdom, it's like you have a hot spot of the kingdom around you. Like a lot of your phones can do that. You turn on a hot spot, have a little internet around you. As you're living in the kingdom by the power of the Spirit, as you're living under Jesus' rule, your life, your area is a hot spot of the kingdom where people can experience some of the kingdom by being with you because you're living under his reign. And the cool thing is as we gather together, all those hot spots coalesce, right? They coalesce. Here as we gather on Sunday morning together, guys, this is an embassy of the kingdom. Isn't that what an embassy is? Like in, in other countries, there will be a pocket of a country. You know, that embassy really is that other country in the foreign country, right? So if you went to U.S. embassy in, say, Switzerland or something like that, that place is sovereignly a piece of the United States, right? The church, guys, is an embassy of the kingdom. As we gather, we are his people. It's a, it's a pocket of the kingdom coming here in this land that is still overtaken by the kingdom of darkness. 
And it's really cool because people can, citizens of this doomed kingdom can come in to the church and learn about the king. And they can learn about the kingdom and they can see what kingdom life looks like. And they can even experience some of the powers of the kingdom as God works through us miraculously and does things. We, there's the power of the kingdom on display. And they can come to believe the gospel and surrender to the king and get reconciled to the king and get citizenship. Like this is an embassy. People can come, hear the gospel, and become citizens of the kingdom that's coming. That's why we gather. That's why it's important. That's why you don't do the Christian life by yourself. We're an embassy of the kingdom as we gather. And, and the church, guys, gives glimpses of the kingdom to the world. You know, one thing we should do more and more is think, of our, think to ourselves, what would this place be like when Jesus fully comes here? That would show us a lot of what we should be doing as a church. For example, like, what would my city look like when Jesus fully comes here and brings in his kingdom? What would my neighborhood look like? What would my school look like? What would my home look like? What would my life look like? And then seek the Spirit to do those things. Um, Girls House of Refuge is a great example of that. That's a pocket of the kingdom, right? So in Cambodia, there's a huge problem with sex trafficking. We know that when the kingdom fully comes here, there will not be slavery. There will not be exploitation. And so our sister Holly went there. Um, empowered by the Spirit, gathered with some other believers, and actually invited girls into uh, homes so they could be safe and have family and learn about Jesus and get saved and get discipled and get education and meaningful work and live freely and live under the kingdom. It's a pocket of the kingdom, guys. The Spirit is creating a pocket of the kingdom in Cambodia in that way. This is something we can totally do here. I thought about this recently. Like This might be a good strategy for us. Maybe we rent a house at some point. You know, and we bring in people. It's something you could do here, too. But it's something that, 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 that the church is actually an embassy of the kingdom. Uh, Sun City Gardens will be that way. I mean, it seems like a small thing to go and go carol and stuff like that. But guys, loneliness is a profound form of suffering for the elderly. Okay? You think, like, they are suffering with arthritis and all different things. Their most profound form of suffering is their loneliness. Mother Teresa said that loneliness is the leprosy of modern society. Okay, we don't have lepers, we have a loneliness. And it's weird, and it's a very technological age, and there's all kinds of things. There's a deep loneliness. Guys, and we know that when the kingdom fully comes, there will be no loneliness, right? It's a place of community, it's a place of belonging. And so the Lord has stirred up some of you to go and care for the lonely there. And um, Elisa goes every week, and others of you have joined in. But the Spirit is doing something really cool there, guys, because they're not just dependent on us doing that. What's happened is, is the faith in these elderly people is stirred up. They become forming friendships and community, and they're actually caring for each other. And a lot of that loneliness is being met, not just when Elisa and them come, but throughout the week as the Spirit is, is creating a pocket of the kingdom there. Isn't that cool? And another one that was just recent was um, here at the school. So there's families who struggle financially here at the school, and, um, and we know that the kingdom of God is going to be a place of feasting and joy. And so uh, it was really cool that the, the deacons uh, were stirred up to, to get some holiday meals for people, some Christmas meals. And um, it was really cool that you guys gave to that. And so it was, Tim got to go by uh, this week with the, the cart and bring 10 meals. And it's all the stuff you need to do, a full Christmas meal. And then I thought it was really cool. They, they put in their board games too, right? Because the kingdom is a place of play, isn't it? Right? And so it brought those. And it's just, it's, it's an evidence of the kingdom. And it's really cool because the, the, the principal is actually very into like telling the kids and, and telling the, the families that this is from the church. These are from Jesus' people. So they'll know that as something from King Jesus. Um, lastly, announce the kingdom. 
You know, when we talk about the gospel, it means good news. And in the first century, gospel meant you would either be announcing the birth of a king, the new reign of a king, or victory in war, okay, or victory in battle. In Jesus, we have all three. We have the announcement of the birth of a king. We have his heroic victory on the cross, defeating um, and, and removing our sins. And we have now a king reigning whose government will increase with no end. And when people receive that good news, guys, they get engrafted into the kingdom. Colossians says that, right? It says we get transferred. People get transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus by hearing and believing the gospel, and then they're set free. And I just want you guys to be praying for Christmas Eve, for next week, that people would come and they'd be set free, that they would hear that gospel message, and maybe they would just be a piece of it, you would discuss it with them later, or maybe they would get saved right on the spot, but let's pray that everyone, and and proclaim so that everyone knows that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Son of David. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Father, may the increase of your Son's government have no end. Lord, we want to see our Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David, coming on the clouds to make all things right. We pray, Lord, come quickly. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.